from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, networks and space. In addition, we'll be joined by Ms. Martha Weinman-Lear, who will discuss aging and memory. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grokks Science Show. I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Actually, very peaceful, actually. <laughs> Have you heard about the strength of weak ties? Weak ties? What's that, Frank? You know, this is one of the ways sociologists have characterized how people move about in a social network. For example, to find a job is that we have a friend of a friend who may have a job opening, so you sort of use this network of links to find your job. Maybe you. So. <laughs> but you know, sociologists have been curious to know how these ties affect an entire structure within an industry, within a whole community, within cities. And what some scientists at Oxford have found out is that these weak ties are the actual critical ones to maintaining the overall structure of your group. So, for example, we hang out all the time when we're strong ties. Let's say that tie gets cut off for whatever reason. Overall, it's not going to have a huge effect on society. Nothing we do has a big effect on society. But let's say, you know, all the little contacts between, say, the U.S. and India disappear. Then the whole network or structure would collapse and would have something totally different. The way they were able to conduct this research was they look at the phone records. They have all these records of people who use cell phones, and they sort of did little experiments to see what would happen if certain linkages got cut off. And it looks like when you cut off the really strong ones, the overall effect is nothing, whereas you cut off all the little small ones. So this is one of the fascinating fields in sociology is how entire social structures build and what are the underlying factors. And for a long time, they've thought that these weak linkages were more important than the direct strong linkages. And this was carried out by Juca Pecconella at Oxford University. All right, Frank. Well, moving on from social networks to rat networks, or at least rat networks of a sort. Actually, they're whiskers. Researchers have been interested in how rats are able to sense the textures of different walls and environments. And up until this time, it's been very difficult to study these rats directly because they're moving so quickly. But now uh, researchers have used some new technology developed by Jason Ritt at MIT. What they essentially did was use a very fast camera to capture how the whiskers move and attach and touch the walls or whatever surface they're looking at. These rats, when they move very quickly, the whisker kind of catches onto a surface and then releases and sort of resonates. And it's that resonation of the whisker that apparently transfers some information about the texture of the wall. Combination of the whisker and its elasticity that allows it to happen. So very cool, and this was actually published in a recent edition of Neuron. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Ms. Martha Weinman-Lear will join us to discuss aging and memory. So stay tuned.
welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, we all experience those moments of absent-minded forgetfulness, but as we age, those moments may seem to increase in frequency and perhaps cause us to wonder if something more serious might be occurring. But just how much forgetfulness is normal? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Ms. Martha Weinman Lear. Ms. Lear is a former staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, whose work has appeared in many notable publications. Author of the New York Times bestseller Heart Sounds, her new book, Where Did I Leave My Glasses? The What, When, and Why of Normal Memory Loss, explores this issue for a general audience. Ms. Lear, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Charles. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this has certainly got to be one of the uh, prime concerns for the aging population, uh, the worried well, as you call them. Is it a major issue? Well, I have to tell you that officials of the Alzheimer's Foundation and every one of the neuroscientists I interviewed, and I interviewed a slew of them, agree that hanging on to memory is the chief health anxiety of the baby boomer generation, and there are 78 million of them. And so many of them, millions of them, worry because they do not know, as I didn't know before I began researching the book, that the kind of memory loss we all begin to experience in middle age is perfectly normal. Mm. And what kind of memory loss uh, is this? Well, that's really a good question mm. because there are many different kinds of memory. And the kind that we lose, this is across the board, it's just classic, is what the scientists call episodic memory. Mm. Episodic memory refers to personal experience. Another kind of memory is semantic memory, which refers to facts. And the most basic kind of memory, which we use unconsciously, is called procedural. And that's sometimes called knowing how memory, knowing how to eat, to walk, to tie your shoelaces. That's procedural. Semantic would be eyeglasses are to see through. That is factual. Episodic would be where did I leave my eyeglasses? That's the kind that begins to slow down on us, typically starting around age 50. And these other forms, semantic and procedural, they typically aren't as pronounced in their decline? They hang around like they stick to you like glue. <laughs> Unless, of course, you are unfortunate enough to develop some form of dementia of which there are many kinds besides Alzheimer's. But this book is not about dementia, although one chapter does chart the difference between kinds of forgetfulness that are perfectly normal, probably, and kinds that might be worrisome. But apart from that, the book is about normal memory loss, not dementia. And normal memory loss means where did I leave my keys? What's his name? I just, his name is on the tip of my tongue. What did I come into the kitchen for? What was I just going to say? I can't remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> All that kind of personal experience memory is what begins to, it's not that we lose it, Charles, it's still there, but it takes us longer to retrieve it. I see. At what point should someone start to become concerned, or how can they tell if it's just normal memory loss? It's largely a matter of degree. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples, if I may. Forgetting where you parked the car happens unoccasionally to most people who drive a lot and who are coming into their middle years, and it's generally nothing at all to worry about. But if you start 
forgetting where you parked the car with increasing frequency and much more significant if you then begin sometimes to forget a familiar route home that could be worrisome so it's really a matter of degree and often a, a subtle change in personality if you say oh lord i'm forever losing my keys mm. we all do so what nothing to worry about if you say who moved my keys you know it nears into something else it's uh, blaming other people it's not recognizing one's own responsibility and that might be a sign of some early developing problem might not but might be i see that uh, in your book tended to visit with a lot of new neuroscientists on the process of memory loss what did you actually discover about how memories are formed and just exactly what happens during the times when we're, we're losing our memory well of what made a revolution in this kind of knowledge is the brain scan technology, which only came along, I think, in the early 90s. And I'm sure that future generations will look back on this technology as the greatest progress, the greatest step forward in understanding of the human intellect, the human mind, since the discovery of the unconscious. And so what scientists have been discovering since they've been able to wire us up and look inside our brains as we're doing different tasks, you know, is to pinpoint which areas of the brain are responsible for different kinds of memory, which areas of the brain get involved in different tasks. And of course, they've learned infinitely more about how memories are formed. We know because they tell us that the average brain, which is about three pounds in weight, has conservatively a hundred billion, that's B as in boy, neurons zapping around in there, and memories are formed by chemical and electrical impulses traveling along through networks of these neurons. And since they've been able to wire us up and peek in and see what's going on there, they've discovered infinitely more about how all that works. And what parts of the brains are they finding are most active when they're forming memories? Well, what's really interesting is the research explains to us so clearly, so transparently, why episodic memory is the kind that begins to slow up on us. Memory is all over the brain, but certain areas of the brain seem to be more important for using efficiently certain kinds of memory. And episodic memory relies heavily on the front part, the frontal lobes of the brain. As it happens, the frontal lobes are the area that begin to lose volume first. The brain is, I was astonished to learn that it all begins so early, but the brain begins losing volume at a rate of about one half of 1% a year, starting around age 30. I was so taken aback by that. And infinitesimal, very slight difference from year to year and from decade to decade, and you don't notice any change until typically you get into your late 40s or early 50s. And even then, it's not a dramatic change, but for us, we perceive it as dramatic because in our self-perception there's such a huge difference between a brain that is 
moving along at 100% of its what we think of as normal speed and one that's down to perhaps 95%. Well, the frontal lobes begin to lose volume first. The loss of volume is as normal as changes in every other part of the brain. You know, nobody expects to run at age 50 as they did at age 20. You may not like it, but you accept it. You don't worry about it. But we tend to worry about any kind of cognitive change. That threatens us. But in fact, it's as normal as change in our muscles, change in our skin, change in every other part of our body. And so why is it that people are perhaps more willing to accept the changes in their physical bodies, but yet uh, not so much their mental abilities? Well, good question. Good question. It's because, you know, it's the big I. What am I? Who am I? Where am I located? Well, I'm not located in my foot or in my kidney. I'm located in my brain, right? And so any change to that organ becomes um, immensely threatening. And when I began to feel my memory was glitching and playing peekaboo games with me, when I got worried enough about it, I went and saw a neurologist, had a full consultation, a workup, battery of tests, and he informed me that my memory loss was perfectly normal. He was the first person who told me that it is the leading health worry of 78 million baby boomers. And he said, don't worry about it, go home. It's normal, it's universal, it's the same story all over the world. And well, since I was thus reassured, I've worried less about it and I think that's improved my memory and that was a big motive of mine in beginning to research the book and ultimately writing it. Are, are there any recommendations for people in terms of maintaining their memory and to the maximum ability into a later life? Well, yeah, sure there are. And we all know that what the scientists call the sacred four, diet, exercise, getting enough sleep, and controlling stress, we... <laughs> We know, really, or most of us do, that we should do all those things. We know that a diet that is healthy for the heart is also healthy for the brain. We know that we should get exercise, but we don't do a lot of the stuff we ought to do. We look instead to easy solutions. The market is flooded now with so-called brain games and brain boosters and brain this and brain that, and they have a limited value, but I think it's important for people to understand that memory is now a huge business. Aging is a multi, multi-billion dollar business, and so many of those games that are flooding the market now have a little bit of a Mickey Mouse quality to them. Um, many of them claim that they can teach you how to use different functions of your brain. Well, the truth is, so can a good book. And you can go out and buy a little computer game that will teach you to be better at remembering lists, for example. And if you keep practicing that game, you will get better at remembering lists. But that's not going to do much to help you remember where you parked the car or where your keys are. In other words, it's a very limited, narrow, focused kind of assist. It's not going to help you in your normal course of daily living. 
So the message is just what people have been recommending for years, just good diet, good exercise. And of course, keeping, you know, brain healthy certainly means keeping keeping the brain active. Most of the neurologists and neuroscientists and psychologists I interviewed stressed that having an active social life, being involved with people, all of that helps us stay mentally active. And anyway, it, it, it makes for a more interesting life, doesn't it? Well, really what it's worth living for. <laughs> that is right, right. <laughs> Again, I'm curious, what is the point where people, you know, ought to start looking at their memory loss, whether it's normal or not, or do you have any recommendations for monitoring this sort of thing? Well, it's a matter of watching for degree. I don't believe in obsessing over this stuff. That is, some of your listeners may wind up with dementia of one sort or another. That may happen to you, but, you know, you could also walk out your front door and heaven forbid get hit by a car it's a possibility but the lovely probability is that the kind of memory law i keep saying loss it's really more of a slowing down the kind of memory slowing down that makes you say oh what's his name it's on the tip of my tongue or where did i leave my wallet i can't find it or what was I just going to say? I, I, that kind of thing, the probability, the enormous probability is that it's a perfectly normal process of memory slowing down. It's part, I say in Where Did I Leave My Glasses, that it's part of the price of admission to the later years, to longevity. And as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the best buys in town. So, so really the uh, message is, I think, one of reassurance and hope. Oh, yes, of course. We are running slightly out of time, but uh, if you have maybe a, a final word or take-home message for everyone out there about memory and memory decline. Well, I don't about memory decline. I do about memory, which uh, most of us take so for granted, and really it's a miracle. I think of memory as a kind of time machine because... It works by association, and you, right now, I'm sure, Charles, you can think of something that happened to you today that will remind you of something that happened to you 10 years ago that might, in turn, remind you of someone you knew when you were a child. I mean, memory is an instant time machine that just takes us back through time and space in the most remarkable way. It is what makes us human. It's what distinguishes us. We're blessed to have it, and I think we should concentrate on that rather than on worrying about what our normal memory loss means. Well, I think that's uh, certainly very good words of advice. And uh, again, your new book is uh, Where Did I Leave My Glasses? The What, When, and Why of Normal Memory Loss. Ms. Lear, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. I was pleased to be with you. And you're just listening to Ms. Martha Weinman-Lear discussing aging and memory. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. When I get older, losing my head many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine If I'd been out till quarter to three Would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64 
play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic sharp as a tack or dull as a doorknob. Mm-hmm. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know sharp as a tack, dull as a doorknob, and maybe a little reason why. You ready to play the game? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Person number one, sharp as a tack, dull as a doorknob, the uh, starlet Lindsay Lohan. Oh, Lord. Dull as a doorknob. <laughs> Uh, just overdosed, O.D. on Lindsay Lohan. Probably could use a lot less of her. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, number two is the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. Yeah, sharpest attack. He came into that position in a difficult time, and I don't know anything about economic matters. Um, I don't know how his moves will play out in future, but he seems to have a calming manner and a modest manner that I find um, more attractive and preferable to that of his predecessor. Mm. Well, let's certainly see if uh, he can make all the right moves here. Right. Number three is the television huckster Kevin Trudeau. Uh, the huckster of memory games memory tapes, and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I've told you how I feel about all that. Some of those games have, as I said before, a limited kind of value. I interviewed uh, scientists in many important laboratories, research laboratories across the country, who are working on memory enhancement uh, possibilities for the future, and some of the computer interactive programs they're working on may be the real thing, but I don't think the stuff that's out in the market now is the real thing, so I'd say dull as a doorknob. <laughs> All right, number four is uh, golfing phenom Tiger Woods. Oh, well, I think he's I think he's sharp as a box full of tacks. I think he's <laughs> terrific. Indeed, indeed. And finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, George Bush. I'm not going near that one, <laughs> Okay. Perhaps a wise political move on your part. <laughs> <laughs> really, um, I don't have a good word to say, so I'll say nothing. Perhaps uh, very wise, I think. <laughs> All right, well, Ms. Lear, uh, again, I want to thank you for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about your book, which was called uh, Where Did I Leave My Glasses? The What, When, and Why of Normal Memory Loss. Ms. Lear, thank you very much. And I might mention the webpage that will be in operation is MarthaWeinmanLear.com. All right, very good. I hope people will go check that out. Again, thank you very much again. Thanks. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more for the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.